bonkers, really, because he, actually we set up for everybody to be kind of a hero if he wanted to be, because they're even willing to discuss the Palestinian problem. I mean, we're working any possibility of trying to, you know, prevent a total war. And, uh, and he could have come out as a kind of heroic figure in the Arab world. It actually made the world look at the Palestinian problem. It was like this, he could have turned it to his own kind of advantage and, and advantage of the people he says he's for. He's trying really interested in the Palestinians. He's not helping them by what he's doing. He's really, he's dooming them. be some kind of really evil force, and it is something really rotten that's so caught in itself you can't, you know, there's no, no, no world view, no uh, understanding of, no ability to, to even, it, because it's all written out like they've, in Time Magazine and all these, they, you know how everything's spelled out, options and, I mean if you, if your own minister is, could keep you informed. You could see all these, quite a few possibilities <coughs> for coming out as a <coughs> and keeping your all your army intact and and uh, coming out with a good with a image that that he really would like to have, but he doesn't <coughs> can't do it. Then he says really offensive things. I mean, you, you, when somebody says, "I'm going to make your men swim in their own blood," I mean that is those are fighting words. It's like saying your mother has a mustache. <laughs> those are fighting words. <laughs> Well, he, that's the way he's talking like this, but it actually does the opposite effect. It's, it's uniting everybody. <laughs> I mean, even people that were against, against it now, are, I mean, more people are inclined towards a war than ever before due to such, <coughs> such tactics. And Bush is coming out looking like a you know, really good guy, well played, everything kind of well done, and fair, being fair and all this. So, I mean, Bush is much enhanced by it all. But I mean, maybe in Iraq that's the way you frighten people, you know, like in, in New Guinea, <coughs> the tribes, New Guinea Stone Age tribes, when they go to war, they wear uh, ghost masks and they try to frighten each other. 
They're going boo and blah, <laughs> things that bhikkhus are forbidden to do in a country. <laughs> and uh, so maybe in Iraq that that's the way to scare an Arab. <laughs> He's probably terrifying all the Arabs more. <laughs> <laughs> and the Saudis are absolutely <laughs> petrified. <laughs> hiding behind the aprons of the U.S. But for a Western world, I mean, that is, that's a, those are fighting words. I mean, you, you give us, you give me more uh, force by threatening me, by telling me what you're going to do to me. Uh, somehow something in me react very strongly. <laughs> They're, they're, well, they've got the Palestinians. <coughs> I wouldn't count on them too much. And uh, nobody, even Assad in Syria, is the allied forces. And uh, Iranians are staying out of it, and they hate Iraq anyway. <coughs> the Soviet Union is behind and with the alliance. Even Libya is not supporting. Gaddafi, I think, even sent some kind of peace proposal. proposal. <laughs> Personal peace. So, I mean, it's, it's weird. Even the bad ones are, are are with us. The alliance is <coughs> and then you see this little, little country and uh, you know they don't have they've been they've been sanctioned against them. Although that there there's uh, you know their supplies won't last all that long. And the Allied troops They've got these supply lines from all over the world. Persian Gulf is black with cargo ships bringing food and ice cream to the American troops. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the mouse attacking the elephant. to support it, and the, the MPs, and uh, not all of them, I mean, 
of Gazettes, an American Congress. <coughs> America is the most, uh, American people are the most half-hearted. Even though America has this very warlike, aggressive image, I think Americans really, don't, you know, many, you know, a good percentage don't want war of any sort. can you do? There's nothing, there's nothing else you can do. He made the choice out of the same, decided what's going to happen. And uh, unless there was some really saintly, highly evolved leadership, which I don't see coming from. <laughs> it's just <coughs> inevitable. And so they planned to, they, they're not saying when they're going to start it, but it can be any time. From 5 this morning, the actual deadline, 5 a.m. British time. <coughs> and they talk in terms like Americans can can lose up to 10 airplanes a day for a month and maybe 10,000 American troops will be slaughtered. Who says? In these, uh, like in the newspapers. Well, they, they, these are kind of mild estimates. <coughs> like only. Being quite happy to lose ten planes a day. Yeah, only ten planes <laughs> is all you're going to Right. And only ten thousand men. want to be the, in the military. Mm. 
lot like Vietnam where most were kind of conscripted and forced to go. So their women uh, are not, they're not conscripts, they, they've asked for it. <laughs> there was happened to be some women in a combat situation in Panama and, they, and uh, they're supposed to just be support and uh, things like this. But they can't volunteer for the infantry, they just plain can't volunteer for the infantry but they, they can uh, be support. It's not fair, is it? Uh, they miss the opportunity of raping those Arabs. go shopping they have to wear these uh, these kind of uh, yes <clears throat> if they go into <coughs> like Riyadh or the Arab cities they can't go as uh, in looking like you know unless they're wearing these uh, this kind of <coughs> gown that covers everything <coughs> so even though even though American uh, Female officers have to wear these things. Even if they're all up in some kind of combat gear. Very funny country, Saudi <laughs> Arabia. Said it because it's so uh, uh, puritanical. They haven't. They're not. The troops don't don't drink, and uh, there's no. I guess there's no hardly any drug taking or drinking. So that they feel <coughs> the morale of the troops is very high, and uh, it is kind of. Might be alright to feed together it's meals in the afternoon that would get him. <laughs> I do like the warm weather.
know how, how far Iraq's striking distance is with their chemical weapons? I've heard that they could put those on, uh, on cruise missiles similar to the nuclear weapons that, that the Alliance has. Quite some distance, I think. They say they're going to blast uh, Tel Aviv if the Amer Americans attack. That's quite some distance. <laughs> but the Israelis don't seem terribly worried about it. I mean, they, they, they seem confident that they could knock anything out. Nobody knows. I mean, he's, a, he's the kind of man that says, I'm going to, you know, grind you into the soil. I'm going to swim in your own blood and I'm going to pulverize you, destroy everyone, women, children, and goes on in this kind of style. But whether they've been able to do very much. Because you see, the Americans have all their, have, with their uh, satellites and all that, know where everything is. <coughs> and then, uh, and you see, they're focused in one country. I mean, like everything, all the weapons around the world are now aimed from Turkey and, and uh, <laughs> aimed on Iraq. And, uh, Iraq is, is uh, you know, just, uh, it has no place to go. I mean, it's like everything around is totally surrounded, and yet it, uh, I'm going to smash you, I'm going <laughs> to, uh, amazing, it is. I think everybody just, you know, they don't understand it at all. Like uh, the French envoy, this Saddam Hussein just didn't even want to talk to him. That we don't want any more proposals. We want war. And Perez de Cuellar this <laughs> felt, you know, there's no what, no, there's nothing to say. There's no way that they want anything other than a war. And yet, nobody really wants a war. Why doesn't he start it if he wants it so bad? Well, he has. Yes. <laughs> he has started it. good example of uh, Avicca. 
Jnana Vicha to ultimate absurdity. You, you were so ignorant you had possibly there's no there's no kind of like a mad person is someone that uh, you can't ever reach. There's, uh, they're enclosed within their own delusion so much mm-hmm. that there's no possible <coughs> way that you could uh, break through their deluded world. Total commitment to their own view and their own opinion. And though, like, all kind of ordinary people or neurotic people or you know, people who aren't mad but maybe neurotic and confused, at least they're, they don't have such a strong commitment to their view. They, they tend to more like you can reason with them a bit more and get them to look at things in other ways. The madman is this total commitment, total belief in everything he thinks and says and does. And then he thinks everyone else is crazy. I've met a few in the in the sangha. This is a. And when you try to talk to them and reason with them, they just no. You're not. It's just not uh, possible. Even though you're speaking English, they're. They they uh, have so much belief in their own view, and if you tend to doubt it or try to convince them that maybe they haven't got it quite right, they think you're they turn on you. They think you are <coughs> the enemy. And they can be, you know, good in many ways, like a certain abilities, and but this 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 uh, total belief in their own opinion. <coughs> That's what I would call madness. Just you see, doubt in uh, being able to doubt things and not being quite sure is painful enough, but at least it's. Uh, it opens the mind up to other possibilities. So, you know, if you if you have a wrong view, and then I think, well, maybe there's another way uh, to look at this particular <coughs> thing, and then maybe there is. Maybe I'm. Maybe I've got it wrong. Could be. And then that person isn't mad. They just maybe have have never looked at something in a different light. like the anatta. Most people believe in the, in the self as being real and uh, that one thing that is real is that I am a person. Seems very real to the conditioned mind. But because we can doubt that and question it and reflect on it, then we, we can realize anatta. But somebody that doesn't 
reflect or doubt or not willing to, to look at something in a different way, then they would never have a realization of truth. All they would do is, is uh, reinforce a position or a conviction. That's where I'm saying these kind of uh, militant religious groups like fundamental fundamentalist Christianity or Islam and that there is a kind of madness really because they uh, they are so committed to uh, a belief that any that there's no reflection or, uh, possible they can't contemplate what they're doing all they do is they they, they have already taken a position and uh, and then reinforce that position all the time with each other. Conversion <laughs> is necessary in order to to uh, reinforce your opinions. So that's why they tend to always want to convert you and make you who <coughs> are like themselves. Hmm? Because they want, because of their beliefs, they want, they want to convert you to the way they think. That's part of the belief system. notice if you, this is how we do it sometimes, if we, if we have a opinion about somebody or something, we tend to want to go to people and convince them that we're right, don't we? If I'm, if I have a particular axe to grind or a particular position that I want to uh, enforce, then I have to go around looking for people to go along with it. Gives me strength, and well, if nobody agrees with it, it tends to uh, one tends to feel uh, it, it creates a doubt, uncertainty.
And I think that's been going on, I mean, in the United States, they, like, in uh, the last century, century before this one, there were groups like that. Like the United States was supposed to be the, uh, it was the, the new world where everything, where the, and Europe was the old world. In the United States, North America was going to be where everything was done right. There was that, in, remember, what, ten years ago, that Messiah? It was supposed to come here to on Brick Lane in London. Just, just set the world right. And it's like, like, whatever, you, you with, with the groups, those are, are cults, you form a cult, you, it's a group that everybody uh, reinforces a particular view. They reaffirm their righteous view. And that's often, uh, and you can see that with, uh, with Islam in the in, uh, Middle East. It's, they, they, re they arouse this uh, tremendous feeling of righteousness and in in Iraq, the only people been through an eight-year war with Iran, they're about to experience another one with the world. And Saddam Hussein can turn them all on into shouting, you know, kill the infidels and all that kind of thing. Masses of people can just be switched on to to that type of thinking. I don't think they're involved in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're usually uh, victims of that. Sufis are different. I mean, they're not. That's more the um, meditating. They probably with uh, the more uh, kind of Gnostic form of of Islam. But oftentimes, it's uh, it's considered heretical by a lot of these very orthodox Muslims. Islam at one time was uh, was a, was a, was the leading civilization in the West. 
one time it was uh, it had a great it was, it was where arithmetic algebra came from and it it was scientific and and it had a it had a kind of brilliant uh, civilization much higher than the Christian or European one at one time. Very bad. It's just that, that I think in uh, it's used uh, a lot for, for just political maneuver, manipulation. Like one doesn't feel Saddam Hussein is, is fighting in the name of Allah as a kind of personal faith and strong belief. One feels he's using it. Because when he was fighting Ayatollah Khomeini, he wasn't, he wasn't noted for his piety. He didn't turn pious till after that, till after the Iran war. This is where it's uh, important to know, like your rights, as a in a religious form, like the moral rights, so that you you know, like like the Banadibata is a, very important to a really see that that is your you that is your right to refrain from killing other human beings and you must try to uh, stand up for that not that even the priests or the rabbis or the imams or the monks or anyone convince you otherwise Wherein, when you when you're going on uh, on the emotional plane, and then I can arouse maybe a righteous indignation in you, and then you then you're willing to kill in the name of Buddha through getting you kind of carried away on the emotional level of anger and indignation. But if you're reflecting on your on your position as a as a nun. And uh, what you what your what your first precept is, then you you uh, you never take that into an active form, like killing another human being. Where in Islam, I don't think they have that at all. It, it, they're they're encouraged to kill. Uh, and they. And killing, uh, if you kill uh, an infidel and you go straight to, and you get killed, then you go straight to paradise. There is the holy war theory. So killing is is uh, is uh, you know exalted as a as a righteous act, where in Buddhism it never <coughs> never has been. 
like animal sacrifice they have in Hinduism, but ne- never in Buddhism. In Hinduism they have mm-hmm. horrendous uh, sacrifices in, in uh, Bengal, you know, thousands and thousands of goats are slaughtered. Animals are killed, the blood runs down the temple steps. <laughs> but uh, I've never heard of that in a Buddhist as a Buddhist practice, I mean Buddhists might kill, but they're not not in the, not exalted in the religion. Christianity also has it, and um, I mean because of the sacrifice of the Savior, drinking of the blood, eating of the flesh. So there's, there's, and there, even though sacrifice is, animal sacrifice is not a part of any form of Christianity I know of, you can see how they, they take, they took that practice of sacrifice and, and, uh, and kind of uh, perfected it in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because up to that time there was a lot of sacrificing going on animal sacrifice. Like in the Old Testament, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. That was considered a, a sacred act, to sacrifice your son to God. And then God forbade it, then they say the Hebrew. Uh, they were actually, but before that, before it was forbidden, that was Sacrificing your son was probably a part of a religious ceremony. <coughs> interesting reflection. To, to just see, like, like sacrifice as a, as a offering something you love. Making something, you, 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 when you sacrifice something, you sacrifice something you treasure, you value, something that you you want to give an offer to uh, to God, to an ideal, where then sacrifice becomes uh, perfunctory, like uh, just uh, the goats and things like this, and you go through the motions of, of uh, superstitious ceremonies, and the kind of original uh, meaning and, and actual religious experience that seems to, to diminish considerably over the years because those things go into into kind of perfunctory ceremonial behavior. Whereas say in in Buddhism, what are you you're sacrificing but yourself? Selfishness. So that you're taking this the sacrifice to what is most most important to us usually our 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 ourselves. So we're sacrificial victims, all of us, aren't we? We're, we're sacrifices. We're making sacred our lives, making ourselves like in a 
in the Vinaya, in the practice, making the, making uh, this form in our mind pure and worthy and, and of offering to the world, to the truth. That's a reflection, you know, how to, to see where the Buddha, how the Buddha took that religious uh, practice and uh, and applied it in a very, in a psychological way rather than in a physical way, because we do it psychologically rather than say sacrificing uh, a human or a, an animal or even uh, a savior. We wouldn't look at Buddha as a sacrifice in the, in the same way that Christians would regard Jesus as a Jesus Christ. Because a lot of the anguish we feel, isn't it, is when you have to sacrifice or give up something, something you really want to hang on to in this life. When you really look at the misery we, we have in this life, how much of it is based on just holding on to some, something of ourselves and not wanting to, to let it go. Like, like a man's mind very much works like this. You, you can one-point it on something. Uh, I don't know, I don't, women don't seem, minds don't seem to work so much in this way, but uh, a male mind gets very one-pointed, concentrated on an object and becomes thoroughly absorbed, you know, intensely interested in one thing. And that suppresses everything else. So you, you kind of, uh, you know, if you're, if you're aiming at a target, you, that's all, your mind's totally with that, so that you're, any kind of reflectiveness on, say, the moral, whether it's moral or whether it's how many people might be killed or that, that doesn't come till after, afterward, because uh, you've one-pointed your mind. <clears throat> and like I've been saying in the morning reflections, that makes, makes you insensitive. You don't feel anything <coughs> because you're absorbed. You're so concentrated and absorbed. So this is uh, like compassion is more, uh, you know, qual uh, uh, ability to to reflect and understand the, the common suffering. Uh, and they'll say, like, if you start thinking of Iraqis, not as Iraqis, but as mothers and fathers, or sons and daughters, or grandparents, or fellow human beings, or then you and then that, then that, then that allows a compassionate feeling to arise. But when you just see the enemy as the enemy, then then that 
then you, you, a whole aim, that, that whole attitude of the enemy is to get rid of it, kill it, stop it. <coughs> so that's why, like in uh, developing the mind, you, you, you need both qualities of concentration, but also reflect, like samatha vipassana, uh, ability to one point and put your mind onto something, and then to be able to reflect, contemplate, investigate the way it is. Now that's a, that's a skillful use of the human mind. <coughs> but one can criticize these, uh, like the, the military, for doing this. But it is, uh, it is exciting. And uh, it's mesmerized, it holds your attention. It must be incredibly uh, uh, thrilling to do that, to be able to fly one of those jets and zoom <coughs> in, bang that, and so forth, and shoot down things. And so you find that's why uh, men can easily just, uh, you know, like, <coughs> like you wonder why, why men uh, can just kill animals. You know why? Why men like to go out and hunt and just kill things? It's not even for food, but just just because you can, just because it's so exciting to aim a gun and kill something. That it's not you don't thinking of the animal at all as being a. If you think of the animal as Bambi, you can't do it. <laughs> as soon as Bambi enters your consciousness, you can't do it. And if you just see it as a target. You know, then you then you 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 can aim. Uh, you more or less can aim more accurately. You have you can't bring the the object into your mind with compassion, but merely as a target, as something to aim at and concentrate your mind on, be fully with and and shoot it. And that's a very <clears throat> exciting thing to be able to do. Your mind is your mind is you know your your. Uh, if you if you have, say say if you have a boring life and you're not very happy with anything and you fight with your wife and can't get along with your kids, life's got hunting. I mean, you can your mind isn't concerned. You, all that's dropped behind you. You don't carry it with you in those moments. So let's say the <coughs> say the. Uh, Using the mind, but with ignorance, it's it's a vicha bhajaya sankara. Then, as you develop, <coughs> like with vipassana, your vipassana meditation, the mind satipatthana, you're you're lifting yourself out of of the conditioned realm. You're getting in touch with ultimate truth. Then there's, then there's, with that, then there's balance. Things are in perspective. Things are seen as for what they are. <clears throat> or even compassion, or the ideal of compassion, can get soppy. It can make us flabby. <clears throat> we can, like too much metta, makes you kind of just weak and flabby. You just, oh, we've got to be kind all the time. We shouldn't say anything harsh. Should always be gentle. 
we mustn't ever raise our voice and anybody that raise their voice please we must be kind understanding and too much of that you just a uh, massive jelly you have no nothing to hold you up you just uh, melt on the floor so there's <clears throat> that's just sentimental metta that, that's uh, foolish isn't it it's weak you know, and wishy-washy kind of thing so you this this um, wisdom is, is the kind of Panya is is an emphasis in the Theravada school anyway, um, because that that Panya wisdom, mindfulness wisdom allows this compassion to operate freely and and in a way that it's 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 coming from the pure mind rather than just from sentimental idealism. And compassion is a is a is more active. I mean, it's in it's a dynamic, isn't it? So that it's it's how we relate to things that happen to us. It's not it's getting out of the ideal realm, uh, idealist position of we should all be compassionate to apply to 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 its to its dynamic form of living in responding uh, compassionately <coughs> rather than forming ideas about it and clinging to it. Where panya, if you notice, is, is this reflective ability of the mind to see things as they are. So it, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's has a more absolute fixed quality to it. It's, not, it's more static in its, in its, in its symbolism static, fixed, like the Bodhi tree is the, is the point, the place of enlightenment. So then the, the Bodhi tree is a fixed place, it's not kind of roaming around the world saving sentient beings. But from that, from that Bodhi tree then, the, then there's the enlightenment, <coughs> the scene properly in which the Buddha goes and uh, serves humanity, you see. But in very practical ways, he wasn't, we must be kind to all sentient beings kind of thing, but it was, it was direct uh, practice of uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy, uh, equanimity. It was dynamic, uh, relating, rather than, than static idealization of sentiments. Kind of these uh, yin yang, and the, the kind of dualism of uh, of language and conditioned realm, where we then, you know, we see one, when you create one thing, then there's its opposite. 
So if there's condition, there's the unconditioned. As it's thought, that's the creating concepts. So realization isn't isn't creating concepts, is it? But it's um, observing uh, through direct observation, through observing through uh, mindfulness how things are. Just it's a insight into the moment, not a, a theory or an idea uh, that we that we that we grasp and then operate from that from that uh, theory or from that doctrine. So realizing the unconditioned, you don't you're not realizing a thing. It's 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 always conditioned and unconditioned relate to each other. It's one thing. They they relate the relationship is with each other. It's not there's the unconditioned, there's something over here and conditioned over here. But it's how they in the form we're in, uh, because of the power, uh, we're, we're, li- we're born, in a, in a con- in the, and born implies conditioning, birth implies conditioning, therefore the unconditioned is a realization always from the conditioned. That's why dukkha uh, is, takes us, the, is the first noble tooth to see non-suffering or attachment to non-attachment and uh, desire to not desirelessness, greed to non-greed. So these always see the condition as the as rather than as something that that conditions are anicca tukka anatta and I my refuge is in the unconditioned. That's coming from an idea. <laughs> in your head, you know, it's a, you're not, you'll never get anywhere with that. So, so the Buddha pointed to the condition, <coughs> understand it, and if you understand the condition, it ceases. And when it ceases, there's a realization of it, absence. So even a reflection like right now. Non-hatred is like, like right now, there's no hatred, no feeling of aversion in my mind. Non-aversion is like this. Now that's a reflection on, so that you're, you're in, a, in this moment now, you're, there's consciousness of non-aversion. Or non-greed. And it's like this, non-greed, non-hatred is this way. So in that, you're, there's, a, there's a conscious moment there and a recognition and wisdom of non-hatred or non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion. You see, then you're, you're kind of, what you're saying is you're you're training the mind, bringing into, using your con- ability to be conscious, because you're born. Birth means, as a human being, means that you're conscious. Birth implies consciousness. To be conscious, you have to be born. And then, then uh, so, so 
these bodies are born, we're born into this form. So this, con this is the experience of consciousness, subject-object, I'm conscious here. I assume you're all conscious too, but, but consciousness is here and now, right here. You know, as far as I'm, as far as my experience goes, right now, I'm, con I'm conscious of you. <laughs> Say on eye level, it's eye conscious. But this is this way you're, you're, you're establishing the way it is in in with wisdom. You're establishing with panya the way things are. then you can uh, uh, you see the, the artifices we create out of fear and desire like, like uh, the, the reactions the habitual reactions we have the way the mind will just you know go on and complain or grumble or criticize or, or fantasize or whatever you, you have at least a way of seeing it of seeing all that, that conditioning of the mind, as conditions that arise and cease. So then you're, so then you can look at even the most awful kind of conditions as an object. You know, where if you if you don't have that perspective, then there's a lot of things we just can't look at because they're so awful and horrible. And uh, and you think and you, and if you think on, on a personal level, you, I don't want to. I don't want to think like that. I must be a horrible person to have thoughts like that. Thinking uh, awful thought, hateful thoughts, or brutal thoughts, or maniacal thoughts. I must be a horrible person to have thoughts like that. A good man would never think like that. Only a bad man would think like that. So I must be bad. And this, this is the how you deduct. From from the personal view, isn't it? If I have bad thoughts, then I'm a bad person. Isn't that how we think? That's how I think. Well, then, uh, from the Buddha position, you're you're not you're not taking it personally. So the bad thoughts that come in are observed as conditions rather than as personal qualities that are bad. And that's what they are. Then you're then you're seeing Dhamma. The other is not really the way it is. It's the creation of your mind. I have bad thoughts, therefore I'm a bad man. Is that's not really the way it is. That's how you think it is out of conditioning. The way your mind's been conditioned to perceive and conceive yourself and good and bad. So that's why this refuge is such an important uh Contemplation. Why well, we have to really put this refuge into our, take this refuge and use it in, in this way, practical way, rather than just a kind of sentimental way. Because I've been able to look at very directly at really ugly things that come into my mind, and just to be able to to see it and not not be caught in the fear or or self-condemnation or anxiety about and I it makes you compassionate and you, know, you develop compassion because you can understand why people do the things they do and act the way they act 
you can understand how that happens because you're you, you can see how you could be that way if you've been conditioned in, in various ways because it's a, it's, a, it's the blindness that comes from conditioning so you, you can't you can you can feel compassion for say Saddam Hussein or the Yorkshire Ripper or the kind of most uh, detestable maniacs that that you know the serial killers or the brutes and the the uh, corrupt beings you you can you understand it as as uh, like Jesus forgive them for they know not what they do kind of recognition they don't know what they're doing if you knew what if you understood them you don't do those things you don't act that way but you act that way because you don't know and you, you have all these ideas in your mind and you perceive things in a, in a, in a fixed way and there's a lot of influences affecting us, you know, like like very basic instinctual drives and and archetypal uh, images affect us. Uh, there's a lot we just we've never even contemplated, but signs and just like like uh, various there's certain forms that affect the mind very strongly, you know, on a, a subliminal basis. That's what advertising does. Sometimes it's it's affecting us in a, you know not in a kind of hard sell obvious way, but appealing on a on a on a, on a subtler level, but very strong, a kind of vanity and and primordial energies and that can be set off if you're not mind if it's not mindless because that's just the way it is. We've got all realms within us, all possibilities from the devils to the to the angels to become, as far as the human ability to become conditioned to be reborn in various levels, different realms, we've got we can be reborn in all those realms listed in the Buddhist cosmology from the Avechi hell, the uh, <coughs> different hell realms to the to the hungry ghosts, the animal realm human, deva, brahma, and, and the ultimate refinements of uh, arupa, formless realm. So from course, a avici, avici hell is, is a symbol for the coarsest possibility of human experience. Un seemingly unmitigated misery and anguish and despair and anger, I mean, unmitigated, not one moment of relief. There's just one miserable, horrible, angry, hot moment, one right after another. That would be uh, Avicii. Then they go to the very top of the list, uh, uh, neither perception or non-perception. It's subtle. It's, that's the ultimate subtlety of conditions, of possibilities of, of, 
of uh, rebirth into such a subtle uh, refinement of consciousness, but it's still it's still attachment. It's still dana upadana, and it's so so ultimate, so very very refined. And then we find ourselves in this human, born into this human state, which is like this: is you you, you can kind of catch flashes and glimpses of these different realms, but most of our life is, is just like this, you know, is sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, eating, um, bathing, putting on your clothes, taking them off, go, bathe, uh, going to bed, sleeping, getting up, uh, then, the, then the relationships of male to female and person to person and mother son and daughter and father to son and daughter and so forth all these these, these are the human realm of uh, our uh, you know personal feelings our personalities our sense of of being a, a separate person and how we relate to liking and not liking loving and hating where most of uh, most of the days really not neither one nor the other, if you really observe. If, you, if there's mindfulness and you're aware of neither atuka matsuka vedana, then you're you're aware of, of how most most of a human lifespan is is really more on the atuka matsuka vedana, neither one nor the other. So you know that, you're aware, you're aware of that kind of neither nor, neither happy nor unhappy, it's this way, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neither one extreme nor the other. And then you reflect, you can, you can, you can bring that into conscious awareness. So that's why, say, being non-angry, Right now, there's there's not a I can't detect any negativity in my mind at this moment. Non-negative. It's a double negative. It's like this. It's very peaceful to realize non-anger. It's not. It's not taken from the position of, I'm not angry. Notice, I'm not saying that I'm not angry with anyone today. It's just a, a reflection on right now, this moment. That I don't, there's not, there, I'm just taking the, the perception of anger and aversion and just seeing if there's any in my mind, if there's any feeling of that at this moment. It's like this, no, no, no aversions is this way, non-aversions like this, it's quite pleasant, peaceful. But how many, how many of you would notice that? that that's uh, reflecting on 
and, and also, like, when you do feel anger, when you suddenly feel angry or averse, then you, you can take that opportunity to be patient with that feeling and let it and allow it to go, stay with it till it goes, say, say recognizing it, accepting it. And then you realize non-anger is like this. So you're, you're, there's this realizing going on, and realizing the way it is, the condition, the unconditioned, or anger and non-anger. There's not the condition of anger, non-unconditioned, not absolute unconditioned, in the sense of this is the unconditioned, non-anger is the unconditioned. That's what we. That's another grasping an idea. This is a reflective way of reflecting, developing reflective wisdom, so that you're taking the the condition, admitting it, accepting it, understanding it. You re you you're contemplating it as an impermanent thing. You know, you're watching it because you're, you're, you're aware that it's something that that has arisen because it's not like this all the time, and then it's gone, and then the realization of non-anger. That's a way to develop, develop the path, if you, to get the, the, the samaditi, the right understanding, or, so that the path is very, very clear for you. The, this is what the Four Noble Truths is, you know, is to, practicing and reflecting on the Four Noble Truths is all about. So please go ahead. You know, what, what your react, emotional reactions are to, to such uh, experiences. <clears throat> so it, it's a, uh, She's uh, teaching us something, rather than looking at her as disrupting the retreat. How many of you think she's disrupting the retreat? You don't dare. <laughs> <laughs> retreat goes, you see, so if you, uh, you know, th these things always help us to come to terms with, uh, with our own, uh, you know, emotional reactions, the, uh, because like people like that, uh, we, you can't, uh, they operate in their own way, so they aren't, you know, they'll, they'll tend to defy in a, in, a, in, a, in a community that's very conforming, and uh, they tend to be outrageous in a, in a community that's, that's very uh, kind of proper and, and moral and restrained, so that we can feel, you know, one can feel very kind of threatened by somebody being outrageous 
not conforming, not fitting in. And I certainly can feel that way. <clears throat> but then, but then, uh, to really observe that feeling, and, uh, to bear with it rather than to kind of suppress it. Not to suppress your feelings, but to to let these things bring up uh, conditions. Don't be frightened. Don't be. You know, we're not trying to be be saints and act uh, like arahants, but to to really see dhamma and understand these you know, your own kind of fears and and desires that come up are to be can be used. Or enlightenment, rather than being uh, this is judging it, say in a in a, on a personal level or in a in an ideal way, like yeah, an ideal retreat, this wouldn't happen. We could send her off to the hospital, get rid of her. Could do that, and uh, that's one possibility. But the psychiatrist felt it'd be best if she stayed here. So then, uh, this gives us the opportunity to uh, to use the situation to make it to know more. Well, where our uh, what what happens when when such things occur in our lives. I wouldn't want to, like I went to Sammy Ling a couple of years ago and then they take in these people, kind of mentally disturbed people, and uh, as a kind of practice. So that you go there, the first person I saw in Sammy Ling was this uh, absolutely mad looking woman sitting out on the front porch. She looked like a totally mad <laughs> creature. We're here all like that. It's quite, you know, going into this place, it's greeted by such a creature. And uh, so they, then they have, they take in these people, and, they, and I think the government helps, you know, financially. But then you talk to the community, and it's pretty difficult for them to, to have to live with that all the time. And uh, so recognize that, that there's no intention on our part. We're not kind of deliberately bringing people like that here just to, to as a practice. But when it happens, <laughs> then that's the way it is. The intention for the community, for a monastic community, is to, to make available uh, the opportunities for practice of Dhamma and uh, keeping of sila and so forth. That is the intention. Then during the, our lives these things happen, so then we, we, uh, we, that's part of the flow of our life now. Until it's time for it to stop. 
but let that happen accordingly rather than in us uh, getting rid of. Unless, unless getting rid of is the right thing to be doing. But if we're getting rid of only just to, because uh, of our aversion and not wanting to be bothered, then it's wrong. But if, if sending her to the hospital is best for her and uh, the right thing to do, then we should do that. 